Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am continuing my book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. We are moving on to chapter six which is all about how scout bees build a consensus to reach a united agreement in where their swarm is going to find a new home. Before I move into that, I'm going to give some quick homestead updates. I do have a little bit to share for a change (laughs) this week. So firstly, I want to give a really big shout out of love and support to everyone in Texas right now. Uh, Y'all have really been through the ringer with your winter storms. I know some areas are still without power and others don't have water or they're still on a... um, a boil water advisory and I know it's tough so I just want to send out all of my support. I think it's easy for people in the northern states or people in other countries that regularly face cold winters to kind of poke fun but it really is no joke to go through something like this. Um, I was in Georgia during a really big ice storm and it shocked me how quickly things can become desperate when you live somewhere that just isn't set up to handle extreme cold and snow. Uh, Back when I lived in Georgia, I lived in Gwinnett County and at the time the county had just three snow plows for the entire county because it didn't make sense to invest in more. You don't invest into um, cold weather apparatus and infrastructure if you barely ever get cold weather and it was quite the nightmare so I know that it can be extremely difficult thankfully when I was in Georgia things didn't get as bad as they have been in Texas but it seems as if now a lot of Texans are kind of coming out the other side they've had their power returned Um, and so I'm wishing all the best to those of you whether you are kind of recovering from it or if you're still in the middle of it I'm sure beekeepers in particular were very scared for their colonies and I hope that the losses haven't been too bad for you. Again, it's that kind of divide between beekeepers who are used to the cold and bees that are used to the cold and those that aren't. You know, if you've been keeping bees in Texas for a long time, you don't prep for winter in the same way because you don't need to. Um, It's not your fault if things like the polar vortex happens and suddenly you're faced with these you know record lows so I really hope that you and your bees got through it and this uh, northern lass is sending you all of my love now for anyone listening who'd actually like to help there are a number of food banks throughout the tech throughout Texas Um, they're all very local so if you want to help people in a specific area you can google it you'll find some food banks for that area and you can donate they accept monetary donations and obviously if you're local you can drop off food Um, but if you're not in Texas and you're not sure which area of Texas uh, you should be supporting in terms of the food banks you can make a general donation through the American Red Cross I will drop a link into the show description and also on my blog And the American Red Cross has been setting up warming shelters for those who lost power and needed heat. And I also found an Austin-based pet charity that is helping people throughout Texas connect with volunteers and supplies for their pets that they might be struggling to keep warm during this difficult time. And I will post a link to that website, in particular a blog post which 
uh, explains what they need and how they have positioned themselves to help. So if you're interested in helping out those in Texas, please look for the links in the episode description. As for what's happening here on my homestead, last episode I talked about Agnes, the poorly red hen, and I'm very pleased to report that she has gone back outside and she seems to be doing quite well. So she finished her meds and overall was much brighter, but I was concerned that she wasn't eating as much as I would like to see. Now, when chickens don't eat very much, you'll notice that their feces has a green color to it. And this is due to bile that is passing. Uh, When a chicken is eating enough food, um, this bile, uh, the color is not as strong. The bile is still present, but it's, you know, the other um, fecal matter kind of mitigates the color. So I was very concerned about this and I was trying all kinds of treats that usually work on chickens, including like boiled eggs and um, mealworms and grublies and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't working. So my husband suggested that I try feeding her dubia roaches, which we keep for our lizards, but I do feed the chickens as a treat and she absolutely loved them. So after a few days of getting two feedings of dubia roaches into her, as well as, you know, the regular feed that she was eating a little bit of, her feces returned to a normal color and consistency. So that was a big win. And then on the 24th, we had a mild day. It was 50 degrees Fahrenheit, but the real feel was more like 42 to 44. But still, this was a good opportunity for me to put her outside. My concern was that if I put her out on a very cold day, the shock of going from my lovely warm house to the very, very cold outside temperatures could kill her. So this mild day was perfect. I waited until the afternoon when it was warmer and I wanted an easy introduction. So I decided that I would have the chickens out to free range and I would throw a lot of like scratch and other treats around for them to distract them while I let Agnes rejoin. But what I didn't anticipate was that Agnes was relatively high in the pecking order. So the minute her little feet touched the ground, all she cared about was re-establishing that she was in charge. So she marched right up to the first chicken she saw and started a fight. Two other chickens quickly ran in to join the fight, which got Pepper Jack the rooster involved. He was trying to break the ladies apart. Once he successfully separated the girls, he then turned his attention to my leg and he started fighting my leg. And usually he'll back off pretty quickly, but he was so fired up that he just kept going after me. So I ended up having to catch him, scooping him up and then parading him around in front of the hens to humiliate him. And this is actually... um, one of the recommended ways to deal with roosters that are getting too big for their britches because picking them up like that sort of shows that you're top rooster, you're dominant. And also, um, I will admit to having not very charitable feelings at the time. And it is entirely possible that while I held him and carried him around, that I might have been heard saying, who's in charge now, huh? Huh? Who's in charge now? Um... (laughs) Anyway, when I put him down, uh, the flock sort of readjusted. And um, since then, Agnes is back in her position as one of Pepper Jack's favorites and one of the top hens. 
and um, they've been doing really, really well. So she's still not quite at the weight that I would like for her, but she is eating better. So I'm starting to think that maybe the lack of food before was because she missed her flock. The only downside to the time that she spent with me is that now she sees me as a giver of food, which is good, except that if she hears me coming, she'll come right up to the gate and then she'll try and run into the fence part of our yard, which is terrible because that's where my dogs roam and my dogs are not chicken friendly. So I've had to sort of gently keep her away as much as possible. And I think her following me everywhere continues to upset Pepper Jack the rooster because he sees me as getting one of his girls. And I do think that some of his spiciness lately is because of the fact that we are sort of slowly but surely moving into spring and his uh, hormones are going to start ramping up again, preparing him for his reproductive time. And um, I can see some evidence of this. Cheddar, the other Jersey giant who he was found with and who is his main girl, has thinning feathers on her back from being mated. So I might need to get her a a hen saddle, which is basically a piece of cloth that goes over their back, has little elastic bands that go around their legs. And all it does is it's sort of protecting the skin of her back from his claws when he mates because the skin is very delicate. So once the feathers have thinned out and the skin has been exposed, the rooster could actually quite badly hurt her unintentionally with his claws when he's mating. And so I see evidence of the mating with Cheddar because she's his favorite. And then now he fights me a lot. And I'm glad he doesn't have spurs because when he kicks me, so he like jumps up and he uses his feet to like pound as hard as he can against me he's pretty strong I do anticipate having some bruises and I do think that on the very rare occasions that children visit my little farm here I'm gonna have to put him away because he can't be trusted and I think he could do some damage And I have to admit the softy side of me is a little hurt that he doesn't love me because I absolutely adore him and I really want us to be friends. But um, if that's not in the cards for us, then I'm just going to have to keep showing him who's boss and it's not him. So we've had weird weather here. We've had some consistent above freezing days followed by rain. So my garden flooded like it always does. And then it was sort of muddy days for a while. And then we've had freezing temperatures again and random snow flurries. So I don't really know what's going on. Um, I do know that my um, rain boots have finally sprung a leak at the worst possible time when I'm wading through all this water. But they've you know, seen me for three years of extremely diligent service. So uh, Godspeed, adorable chicken themed boots. I honour your memory by going out and buying an identical pair. Um, Speaking of spring, there are some buds that are poking up through the earth. And my first thought when I saw them was, don't lie to me, girls. Do not lie to me. Is spring on the way? Is it? Please, please say it is. So hopefully... I will be reporting very soon that spring is officially here and our temps are warm and things are growing and I can start getting back into the garden. 
Now, some hive updates. Um, on the mild days, we had quite a few bees doing their cleansing flights, and I found bee poop on or near the hive. And for new beekeepers, it's a good idea to keep an eye out for bee poop. Uh, it looks like little runny brown splotches. And the reason why is that it's totally normal to see bee poop during winter when the bees don't travel very far away to defecate. But you want to keep an eye on it because if there's a lot of it all over your hive, particularly around where they um, are entering and exiting, this can be a sign of um, something called nosema, which is a fungus that causes diarrhea in bees. And it is very contagious. It's passed from feces to basically mouth so as the bees encounter the poo and then groom themselves they inadvertently affect infect themselves with the fungus so if you see excessive amounts of bee poop around the hive they could have nosema and you might want to reach out to your local apiary inspector to get a test run to confirm there are treatments for nosema one is uh, like a medical antifungal treatment. Some people also think that just giving uh, microbials and um, probiotics can help. So, you know, reach out to someone who's more experienced, get the test done if you need to, and um, then treat. Now, for me, what I'm seeing is a normal amount of bee feces. Uh, another thing that... I learned recently was I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook anymore but I do occasionally pop in to check on like my Whippet Rescue group and then some of the groups for local beekeepers and I saw on a beekeeping group someone asking about doing an alcohol wash for mites on a dead hive to assess the infestation level and I was kicking myself because that's such a good idea and I couldn't believe that it had never occurred to me. Now, I saw this post after I had lost my Saskatraz mother colony and the two nucleus colonies, so I didn't have an opportunity to test them. Well, sadly, I lost another colony. Um, I actually lost my Ohio queen, Caredwin, uh, and this was a real shocker for me because I thought this was my strongest colony the cluster had been staying low in the box it was big it was noisy but I started getting a bad feeling um sometime last week and when we had a nice day I went out and sure enough they were dead so I did basically a hive necropsy or a hive you know post-death inspection including a mite test and based on what I saw, I'm confident that it was a combination of varroa infestation and something called isolation starvation that caused them to perish. So the mite test using the alcohol method was seven mites to a 300 sample of bees. And that's high for winter. If I saw that in the fall, I would immediately treat them and hope that I would have enough time to get that number down before winter. So considering that there's no brew during winter for the mites to be reproducing in, that's a high level. Now on top of that is isolation starvation and this is basically when it's so cold that the bees can't break cluster even a tiny amount. So the outer bees on the mantle of the cluster can't even walk like an inch away to get food. 
So I found them in the bottom box and they were just one or two frames away from food, but it that's like saying they were a mile away because it was just too cold and they were too weak to go and get it. So I'm absolutely gutted by this loss. Um, I really loved that queen. I loved everything about the genetics. Um, she had previously overwintered really well. She'd come out strong. She had a beautiful brood pattern. She just was an absolute champ. Uh, never threatened to swarm. All the kind of stuff that you want. So I'm really sad that I lost those genetics. But one of the things I decided to do is... Um, I ordered a nucleus colony from a local beekeeper, one of my previous teachers, and she's actually the person who gave me that Ohio queen. And when you order a nuke from her, you have two options. You can get an overwintered Ohio queen or a queen that came from Georgia. So I ordered the Ohio genetic queen and I am excited to see how that nucleus colony does for me. So this loss means that I'm down to just two colonies, uh, Queen Marker, my southern US queen, who I got in one of my very first nucleus colonies, which means she'll be three years old this year. So I, if she actually survives, I'll be keeping an eye on how she's doing because three is arguably getting up there in queen years. And then my other surviving colony is my Saskatraz daughter colony. They actually seem to be the stronger. They have a larger cluster. They're more active. I'm a bit worried that Queen Marker and her girls are weak. But right now I've just put as much food out for them as possible. They're still all bundled up. And I'm just hoping that they can hold on until spring is here proper. In the meantime, I just placed a huge supply order for things like supplemental feeds, um, oxalic acid, Formic Pro. I picked up a new nuke box, um, a fume pad, um, just stuff like that. It really reminds me again that beekeeping is not a cheap hobby. Um, and I also realized I have a ton of frames and boxes that are just taking up space in my laundry slash honey room so I need to curb buying more but I think I went a bit nuts last year buying all those boxes and frames but at least I have them so hopefully if spring goes well I can do lots of splits and nucleus colonies and try and build up my colonies a little bit more so watch this space all right, let's move on to chapter six of Honeybee Democracy, and it is called Building a Consensus. And as with all of the chapters, it opens with a quote. And this one is from the Society of Friends, the Book of Disciples, which was printed originally in 1934. We depreciate division in our meetings and divisive unanimity. It is the unity of common fellowship, we believe, that we shall most surely learn of the will of God. Looking back at what we have discussed so far during this review of Honeybee Democracy, what we've seen is that what normally arises from a swarm's division-making process, we see that it's a dissent-free decision and that it is honestly amazing if you really think about the sheer mechanics of such a feat in the kind of societal structure that we're looking at here. 
Now, this chapter examines exactly how the bees reach this unanimous decision. Honeybees practice a kind of democracy called unitary democracy, and this involves individuals with shared interests and preferences. And the opposite of this, something that we as humans practice, is adversary democracy, where groups of individuals with conflicting interests try and reach an agreement. We learned in the previous chapter about Martin Lindauer's balcony swarm, which failed to reach a consensus and attempted to fly off when two sites were still being advertised. As a result, the swarm was divided, faced confusion in the air and ultimately lost their queen, causing the entire enterprise to completely fail. We can see then how important it is that a swarm scout are in agreement before flying to their new home. When considering exactly how this consensus is reached, Seeley asks two key questions. What causes the support of scout bees for the best site to grow throughout the debate? And what causes the support of scout bees for the poorer sites to fade during the debate? So the first section of this chapter is called Lively versus Lacklustre Dances. Let's consider what we know about swarms so far. We know that a swarm consists of approximately 10,000 bees and that a few hundred of these bees will operate as nest scouts. We can also assume that there are dozens of potential nest sites that are worthy of consideration and that each site is originally discovered by just one scout bee. This means that of the hundreds of scout bees in a swarm, just a few dozen are the discoverers of new sites, while the rest are recruited for support of a particular location. Of those first recruited, these bees will examine the site advertised and then they'll dance for it upon returning to the swarm should they have found it satisfactory. Thus, a swarm's democratic democratic choice of a new home is an election process. There are multiple candidates, the nest sites, competing advertisements via waggle dances, individuals supporting a particular candidate, the recruits, and individuals who are still neutral, scout bees that have not yet been recruited to a site. Scout bees can gain support for their site via their dances, and scouts already supporting a site can over time become apathetic and then return to the neutral pool. It's clear that to gain the most supporters, a scout must strongly advertise her site, which begs a question. If she shows the greatest amount of enthusiasm through her dance, does this relate to how good her site is as a new home? If all scouts abide by the premise of strongest dance equaling the best site, does this mean that only the very highest quality of site will ultimately be chosen? In the previous chapter, we saw that the strength and enthusiasm of a scout's dance does correlate with nest site quality. The first evidence of this came in 1953, thanks to Martin Lindauer's observations of an artificial swarm. He had set up two empty wooden hives 75 metres or 250 feet from his artificial swarm, the scouts of which discovered both boxes during the first day of placement. 
The initial dances for these boxes were not very enthusiastic, but slowly more bees came to examine the hives, until Lindauer had a total of 30 dances for both hives. On the second day of observation, Lindauer spotted an exceptionally enthusiastic dancer on the swarm and realised that she was advertising for a location other than the wooden hives he'd provided. He was able to ascertain the nest site she danced for, which was an underground cavity beneath the tree stump in the corner of a woodlot. The site was protected from wind due to thick shrubbery, had a small entrance of just 3 centimetres or 1.2 inches in diameter, and the cavity was approximately 30 litres or 27 quarts in volume. The cavity was also dry inside despite recent heavy rain. Simply put, it was the perfect bee home. Now, usually as part of his study, Lindauer would kill bees advertising for locations away from his offered nest sites, but he chose not to do so in this case. Within just an hour, this dancer's enthusiasm led to more scouts assessing the potential site and returning to advertise for it. Lindauer felt that this little bee taught him a great deal. Namely, that a bee has an innate concept of nest site quality that is referenced when investigating a potential site, and that a scout's dance provides information not just on the location of a site, but also on quality. Lindauer summarised thusly, The most lively dances indicate a nest site of the first quality. Second-rate homes are announced by lacklustre dances. This next section is called Representing Site Quality in Dance Strength. Seeley notes that he procrastinated on truly studying how scout bees transmit site quality via their dances because he had long believed that Lindauer's conclusion was correct and that work Seeley had done himself continued to support the correlation between the strength of the dance and the quality of the advertised site. In the previous chapter, we saw how the scout bees of Appledore Island danced more strongly for the better home site, and also we covered a little of the work that Seeley had done observing the strength and duration of a bee's dance when advertising a bountiful forage site. We learned how the richer the nectar source, the stronger would be the waggle dance. Specifically, a bee will adjust the number of dance circuits in relation to nectar source richness by adjusting the rate of dance circuit production and the duration. So the total number of dance circuits produced is the product of rate and duration. So if you wrote this down, it would be C equals R times D. Rich nectar sources elicit a higher R, which is the uh, rate and a longer D which is the duration just as Lindauer noted the faint-hearted dances for inferior nest sites while superior sites solicited with a lively and long-lasting dance. By 2007 Seeley knew that he needed to get solid quantitative data about how nest, nest scouts transmit nest site quality through their dances. Seely would return to Appledore Island for this study with two collaborators, Marielle Newsom, an undergraduate at Cornell with beekeeping experience, who was about to start her graduate studies in insect behaviour, and Kirk Vischer, a behavioural biologist from the University of California, Riverside, and a long-time collaborator of Seeley since their days as students at Harvard. 
The plan was to place an artificial swarm at the centre of Appledore Island with two nest boxes set 250 metres or 820 feet away from it at 40 metres or 130 feet apart from one another so that the boxes could be discovered almost simultaneously. One of the nest boxes was high quality at 40 litres in volume, while the other was medium quality at 15 litres in volume. The first five to seven scout bees at each box would be logged and then recorded back at the swarm to capture their dances, allowing the investigators to assess the strength of it. Video analysis would show the precise time each scout danced as well as how many dance circuits she produced. Initially, Seeley was concerned that they would need to laboriously label every single bee of the swarm, as there was just no way to predict which of the thousands of bees would first appear at the boxes. Thankfully, they were saved from this by an ingenious idea of Kirk Vicious. He had discovered a way to apply individually identifying paint marks to a scout without causing her distress and therefore affecting her behaviour. Using a small insect nest, they could gently capture the scout as she exited the nest box she'd been investigating. They could then mark her with paint and then release her in the exact spot where she had been captured. And this seemed to be the key to keeping the bee calm because she would just fly off as if nothing had occurred. Seeley and his collaborators ended up performing seven trials of this experiment over most of the month of July and succeeded in capturing how 41 and 37 scouts advertised for the 40 litre and 15 litre nest respectively. Scout bees reported on their sites for just a few hours and an individual bee's report was often spread over multiple trips back and forth between the swarm and the nest site. Looking at one scout bee's behaviour, named Red for her paint colour, Seely reports that she discovered the 40-litre box at 9.33am. She spent 10 minutes inspecting it inside and out, and then flew to the swarm cluster to announce her discovery. Her first wiggle dance lasted for 6 minutes and 162 dance circuits. She was sighted again at the nest box at 10am and spent another 10 minutes there before returning to the swarm. Although this time she didn't dance. Instead, she spent six minutes just sort of crawling across the surface of the cluster before resting. Even though Red was noted to visit the box two more times at 10.16am and again at 10.26am, she only ever danced after that very first visit. And in fact, after 10.30am, she stopped visiting the site altogether. So despite her initial enthusiastic dancing, Red appeared to have lost interest in visiting and then dancing for her site. Based on the record of 10 other scout bees in this study, Red's behaviour is typical. Each bee made an initial inspection lasting 5 to 35 minutes, returned to the swarm to advertise the site via her waggle dance, and then she would revisit and return, whereupon she might dance again or she might just settle in to rest. Going back and forth between the site and the swarm was seen consistently, and usually lasted for an hour or so before the scout appeared to lose interest in advertising and even visiting the site. 
The main finding from this study, though, was the strong difference in dance circuits performed for the high-quality 40-litre site and the medium-quality 15-litre site. Although great variation was seen, the average dance circuit per B was higher for scouts of the 40-litre box versus those for the 15. So for the 40-litre box, we had an average of 89 circuits versus 29 circuits per B. It seemed that the scout could tell the quality of the site upon her very first visit. Upon returning to the swarm cluster after her initial visit, 76% or 31 of the 41 scouts recorded for the 40-litre box advertised it with dance, whereas only 43% or 16 of 37 scouts from the 15-litre box did the same. Initially, Seeley and his collaborators were surprised by the great variation seen, although it became clear that when counting and averaging the dances, one could see that a high-quality site elicits a dance with more circuits, meaning that even though site reporting quality at an individual level varied, there was a clear swarm-level reporting of site quality. For instance, a single scout from a better site does not always advertise with more enthusiasm than a single scout from an inferior site. But if you were to look at the dances of six bees from each site, you can see that the number of dance circuits for the 40-litre box is greater than that of the 15-litre box 100% of the time. Although swarm-level reporting results in selection of the superior site, Early in the process of discovery, there is a greater chance of error due to individual reporting. For instance, if a Scout B fails to advertise a high-quality site, it will be overlooked by the swarm unless another Scout just happens to discover and report it, which is quite low in probability. It's very unlikely that that will happen. A solution would be for each scout bee to consistently report on a site discovery, and it does appear that bees do this overall. During the experiment, Seeley and his collaborators found that the two scouts that first discover the nest boxes almost always, 86% of the time, reported to the swarm. In contrast, scouts who come to the boxes later, so the recruited scouts, were less likely to report. They would report 55% of the time. This discovery led to even more questions, such as what prompts the initial scout to dance so strongly? Is it the inspection of the location for the first time that triggers this kind of response? For now, Seely states that this is sadly unknown. Looking at the percentages mentioned previously, we can see that this process of reporting new sites to the swarm is not exactly foolproof, and we saw in the previous chapter's discussion of the best of five choice test how one swarm chose a mediocre site due to two scout bees failing to report on the discovery of the superior site for reasons that are unknown. An additional fascinating discovery from their study was the fact that each of the marked scouts visited just one of the two nest boxes, despite how closely the boxes were positioned to one another. This seems to support Lindauer's theory that scout bees have an innate scale of nest site quality. She does not estimate quality through comparison to other sites. So, 
instead of looking at both sites and judging one versus another, when a bee arrives at a site, something is giving her an idea of what makes it high quality. Even though these scout bees did not visit both sites, scouts for the 40 litre box always danced more strongly, indicating that they do have some kind of innate knowledge of what makes a good nest site. Similar site assessment is seen in foragers. So a new forager with no previous experience outside of the hive spontaneously prefers objects with complex shapes, certain specific colors and odors, and all of these things appear to steer her towards flowers. To quote Seeley, I should emphasize that almost certainly a scout bee does not consciously think through her evaluation of a site. Instead, she probably does so unconsciously with her nervous system integrating various sensory inputs relating to cavity size, entrance height and the like, and generating within her a sense of the site's overall goodness. It may be that finding a desirable tree cavity feels to a homeless scout bee as inherently pleasurable as feasting on a delicious meal does to a hungry human being. Moving on to the next section of the chapter, this is called The Strong Grow Stronger. The scout bees reporting on the best site dance enthusiastically with the greatest number of dance circuits. Back in chapter four, we saw during one experiment that a site titled G emerged as the winner of one swarm's chosen home. The bees dancing for this site produced the greater number of dance circuits consistently. Even when fierce debate ranged between sites A, B, D and G, the average number of circuits per B showed that site G received the greater number. So site A had 59, B 29, D 42 and G 74. The following morning of this particular study, when the sites reported were narrowed down to just B and G, the average number of dance circuits remained high for G at 42, compared to just 16 for B. To quote Seeley, because the best site stimulates its supporters to dance the most strongly, its supporters have the highest per capita success in converting neutral scouts into additional supporters new supporters will in turn dance strongly and this recruits yet more dancers until eventually one group has overwhelmed all others with the number of dancers and support. So let's look at an example of how this process works for a situation of two sites that differ in quality. The high quality sites stimulate supporters to advertise with an average of 90 dance circuits compared to an average of just 30 dance circuits from supporters of the inferior site. During the first three hours after discovery, with one scout producing 90 dance circuits and the other just 30, we can see that the total amount of advertising for the two sites is three to one favoring the superior site. Assuming that eight neutral scouts are recruited to the two sites, this means there will be six new scouts supporting the high quality site and just two supporting the lesser quality site. Over the next three hours, the high quality site will lead to a total of 540 dance circuits. So six Bs times 90 dance circuits per B equals 540. 
while the lower quality site will produce just 60 dance circuits, 2Bs times 30 circuits. So now the level of advertising or the force of persuasion has gone from 3 to 1 to 9 to 1. Looking at this increase from just one bee discovering each site, we can see how the higher quality site grows its support exponentially over time. Seely points out that the neutral bees who are recruited do not monitor the multiple advertisements and, they, and then rule out the weaker ones. Instead, they appear to randomly pick up a dance after encountering, encountering it on the swarm cluster. This was witnessed during an experiment conducted by Kirk Fisher and Scott Kamazoo, who is a physician, photographer and fellow bee fanatic. In December 1995, in the desert east of Indio, California, where natural nest sites for bees are scarce, the two men set up artificial swarms and two nest boxes. They labelled each scout bee that danced for a site with individual ID markers and then they recorded all of their dancing throughout the full decision-making process of the swarm. The two men wanted to learn more about the process of those bees that followed or were recruited into a dance. Did these recruits visit both sites to compare? They did not. Instead, they saw that the dancers who became dance followers did so purely in proportion to the amount of dancing for the two boxes. Simply put, they were choosing at random. So how does this lead to the stronger site winning if a bee could randomly select for any advertised site? Well, we know that a good site will reach a point with more dancers and that increases the chance of other bees choosing that dance. Recall that we have the discovery scouts who find the site and then recruit others and these additional recruits will inspect the site for themselves and then return to dance for it if they found it high enough in quality. If it is a high quality site, more bees will dance and for longer and so for more of the neutral scouts will have the chance to come upon these dances join in and thus increase the overall number of support which increases the chance of this site selection. But complete agreement involves not just one site dominating but also for any competing sites to eventually fade and then cease altogether and we will learn about how support for these sites ends in the next section, which is aptly entitled The Expiration of Dissent. In order to come to a complete agreement, the debate must end, and this means that supporters of inferior sites must either switch their support to a more popular site or simply stop supporting altogether. We've seen so far that scouts supporting a losing site will eventually stop doing so, but we have yet to learn about the mechanism of this key aspect of the process. In the 1950s, Martin Lindauer recognised the importance of this dance cessation, but he struggled to quantify it. He favoured the idea that a scout ceases her support for one site when she learns about a superior one. And this is called the compare and convert hypothesis, which posits that a scout compares her first dance for site with a new site and then converts her allegiance should she find it superior. 
But despite this hypothesis, Lindauer noticed behaviour that seemed to go against it. For instance, he observed a scout bee start dancing for a new location without ever leaving the cluster to inspect it. She was simply picking up the dance from the other dancers. So why would she switch from a site she had seen herself to one that she had not inspected? Seeley calls this the retire and rest hypothesis. A bee does not compare her old site to a new one and does not convert to a new site. She merely loses motivation for her own site and becomes quiet and still upon the cluster. Comparing these hypotheses, Seeley notes their different predictions about when a scout bee will stop supporting one site to when she follows a dance for another. The compare and convert hypothesis predicts that a bee will cease dancing for her site only after following a dance for another site, which she then inspects and returns to dance for if it is found superior. The retire and rest hypothesis predicts that a bee will stop dancing for a site even before she has followed a dance for another. To test these different predictions, Seeley set up swarms one at a time and labelled with paint the first few dancers that arrived on each swarm. He would then observe them consistently to note when they started dancing, when they stopped and when, if at all, they followed the dances of others. Seeley had seen previously that the first few dancers on a swarm tend to advertise losing sites, so he focused on these as they had the best chance of demonstrating cessation or converting behaviours. He decided to limit himself to labelling four to eight scout bees for each swarm, and so he would need to repeat the experiment with multiple swarms in order to collect sufficient data. In total, Seeley watched 37 scout bees in six swarms, which totaled 66 hours of observation. As he had predicted, 84% of the scouts initially reported on sites that were eventually rejected, with just 16% dancing for a site that was ultimately chosen. 27 of 31 bees stopped advertising their site before the swarm's decision-making process had concluded, with the four remaining scouts appearing close to cessation uh, based on how weak their dances had become. So did those 27 scout bees stop dancing before or after following dances for another site? Of those 27 scout bees, 26 or 96% of them stopped dancing before following a dance for another site, with just one bee, which comes to 4%, ceasing to dance after following another dance. These results invalidate the compare and convert hypothesis and support the retire and rest hypothesis. But what causes a dancer of a losing site to stop dancing. One possibility is that bees have an internal neurophysiological process that causes eventual loss of motivation. This makes sense if we consider that the eventual fading of interest in a specific site fosters consensus building as it prevents stubborn holdouts which could lead to an uh, end of the debate with no solution found. Potential support of this theory was seen by Seeley during the aforementioned experiment. 
of the 37 scout bees observed, each bee reduced the strength of her dance over time spent going back and forth between the site and the swarm. Looking at three examples, scouts labelled red, pink and orange, we can see that their dance circuits per trip dramatically reduced over time, with red actually going from 49 dance circuits to zero, while pink and orange had more gradual declines. Pink went from 74 circuits to 31 and then to zero. And then orange went from 87 to 60 to 56 to 10 and then zero. To quote Seeley, on average, there is a remarkably regular decline in the number of dance circuits produced per trip back to the swarm. And the rate of this decline is approximately 15 fewer dance circuits per trip. Interestingly, this decline in dance strength is seen whether a scout is reporting on a high quality site or a lower quality one. The difference is that a high quality site is reported with a greater number of dance circuits than those of the lower quality site. And this higher number of dance circuits is important because it means that even with a steady and relative decline in dance circuits for a good site and a poor one, the strength of the dance for the better site will last longer and therefore be louder than the lower quality one. So think of it like this. If I was giving away a dollar every 15 minutes, I would be doing so for much longer if I started with $500 over $100. Since each scout bee eventually falls silent, new scout bees will begin to advertise. So Seely noted how active dancers at 10am had retired by 1pm and those dancers that were active at 1pm had retired by 4pm. Seeley likens this to how scientists conduct their social decision making on scientific theories. As one generation of scientists retire and eventually pass away, new scientists emerge who are familiar with the previous generation's work, are convinced by the most compelling claims, and then adopt new theories of their own. To quote Seeley, one difference between age scientists and age scouts, though, is that the people tend to drop out of debate reluctantly, sometimes not until death, whereas the bees do so automatically. I cannot help but wonder whether science would progress more rapidly if, in this regard, people behaved a bit more like bees. And that's it for this chapter. In two weeks, I will be back to cover chapter seven, which is all about initiating the move of the swarm to the new home. And before I move on, just as a reminder, this is the part of the podcast where I share some like personal updates about my mental and physical health. So if you want to skip that, you can do so now. I thank you so much for listening and I hope you'll be back uh, to join me in two weeks as we continue this book review. So in personal news, um, I actually experienced a very bad depressive episode recently and it kind of shook me up a little bit. Um, I just ended up with literally no energy. I had some like disassociation, which for anyone who isn't familiar with it, it basically means where you kind of feel disconnected with your body. So it's like almost like things are happening to someone else and you're just sort of an observer. Um, 
I'm very, very lucky to have such a supportive husband and he ended up like coaxing me downstairs, um, wrapping me up in a blanket, putting Futurama on, which is my favorite cartoon, and then feeding me tea and biscuits. Um, so yeah, that was pretty rough. I, I'm on the upswing though, so I'm not back to normal, but um, I'm definitely better than I was. I do have an upcoming psych appointment to discuss potentially a med adjustment or a change or like adding something. You know, I, I think um, as much as I've been happy on this medication, I think it's, it's not quite working as well as I thought it was. I also realized that, you know, I haven't been diligent about using my light therapy lamp. So now I am like making sure I do that twice a day, first thing in the morning with breakfast and then sort of midday for a boost. Uh, my appetite has been all over the place. And this is kind of a newer symptom for me with depression. So I either don't want to eat at all or I'm just ravenously hungry all the time. So I'm trying to put myself on a schedule so I'm definitely one of those people who like if I'm not hungry I don't eat you know it just doesn't why would I right and then if I am hungry I will but I think right now that actually hasn't been working for me so if I wake up and I'm not super hungry I'll still make myself have something like even if it's just a, a piece of toast um during the day you know if I'm not hungry like an apple's better than nothing you know that said um I did <laughs> make another carrot cake because baking is really helping me feel better right now and having delicious treats is a good payoff. Um, I really like freezing most of it so that I have slices of delicious cake available when I want it but not just constantly sitting there tempting me. Um, I've also been backing off from coffee and alcohol and I'm just trying to focus on um, tea. So I was kind of worried that maybe the coffee was overstimulating and that maybe the alcohol in the evenings was interfering with my antidepressant you know you're not technically supposed to drink alcohol on a number of antidepressants I've never found it to be a problem because I'm not a heavy drinker but I think for right now it's probably a good idea to um back off from that a bit and I've also sort of eased up a little bit on my um, rule about how often I have to exercise because I think I might have pushed myself too hard without realizing it and I'm trying to listen a bit more about when to rest you know but it's hard when you have depression I'm sure people are familiar with this is that you know depression can often make you feel exhausted all the time and so sometimes you have to make yourself exercise to try and actually get that energy back because it's good for you you know it releases endorphins um, and, it, and it's hard for me sometimes to know like you know what is just exhaustion from depression and what's me being exhausted because something's actually going on and I need to rest so yeah I just wanted to share that um you know it's actually really really difficult for me to talk about it um you know for me depression comes with a lot of negative thoughts so I'll you know, when I'm down, I'll have thoughts like I'm a failure, you know, I'm a broken person, I'm useless, there's no point to doing anything. And it can kind of swallow me up. And there's also like a sense of shame there. Like if I, I did something to cause it, or I didn't do something that also caused it. Uh, but I want to share because I'm kind of hoping that if I'm honest about this, it breaks down barriers that can make anyone feel like they can't talk about it or they can't ask for help 
And also because, you know, this is a part of my life and it does affect the things that I do here on the homestead, which is what I'm sharing with you. So, you know, I just want to be upfront and I know that some of my listeners are facing similar struggles or, you know, worse struggles. And I just want you to know that you're not alone and that other people are working through the same things. So, yep, things are a bit tough right now, but I'm kind of clawing my way back and I'm working on it. And I'm very, very fortunate that I have such a good support system. So no one needs to worry about me. You know, I'm I'm being taken care of. And I really hope that everyone listening is getting on okay. I think this is the point of the year when it can be especially difficult. You know, spring is right around the horizon and we're all desperate for it to get here, but we're still stuck in winter mode and it can be very demoralizing. And then obviously, you know, 2020 was a rough year for a lot of people with the pandemic and a lot of us still can't interact with our loved ones and that's difficult. So I hope if you're listening that you're okay, that you're doing well, that you have a support system, that there's someone you can reach out to if you need help. So other than that, that is all of my news for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm looking forward to covering chapter seven next week and then we're getting very close to the end now. So we're almost done with this. And once I finished with Honeybee Democracy, I am thinking about doing some like general book recommendations. I've been reading and rereading some um, sort of memoirs on people who started their own farms or got into beekeeping or homesteading. And I wanted to recommend some of those. And then I will be moving on to um, top bar beekeeping because I need to start studying that in preparation for when I get mine set up. And so I will be sharing what I learn. So until I get a chance to talk to you all again, stay warm, stay safe. And as always, hug your hands and then wash your hands. Take care. Bye.